I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here anymore. I'm on a wave. I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky. And the only trouble is in wondering why. Sean McCraney. <laughs> hey, every Sunday we gather here in uh, the Heart of the Matter Studios gathering site, and we uh, we do church. We meet at 10 a.m. for our milk gathering, where we go verse by verse currently through the Gospel of John, and then we meet at 2:30, where we do uh, verse by verse. We call it meat, and we are currently going through the Book of Hebrews because of our work in bringing people out of Mormonism. We are wholly committed at campus to try to make these gatherings consistent with what we think uh, is the Bible tells us to do uh, at church, nothing more really. So I so humbly suggest that because of the religious history that God has uh, exposed me to, I, I understand and I humbly submit this to you, I do understand in, men, in in a large way, what people coming out of Mormonism and into a relationship with Jesus Christ need relative to religion, as arrogant as that sounds. And I think I also have an idea of what they don't need. What they need is to be fed. That is what latter, former Latter-day Saints, current Latter-day Saints coming out is they need to be fed. And the only thing that can truly nourish them is the Word of God. You know, it's not going to be concerts as inspiring as they are or motivational topics. It's not going to be a slide presentation on the evils of Harry Potter uh, at church on Sunday, as entertaining and engaging as those things can be. They need the Word of God. They also need community with other LDS people who have come out. You should hear them when they talk because they have so much inside that has to come out. And if it doesn't, it just continues to fester and they almost become, you know, and when I say they, I mean mean too, we become neurotic. We've gotta, we've gotta talk about this stuff. And so when you're with a gathering of other people who have been LDS, it's really important that the churches facilitate that. 
But what they don't need uh, is almost as important as what they do need. Um, included in what people coming out of Mormonism don't need is they don't need religion. They left one of the best religious institutions on earth. I said that to somebody the other day and they said, oh, you say Mormonism is a great religious institution? I said, of course. I mean, you act like me saying it's a great religious institution is a compliment. <laughs> that, that's not a compliment for me, but they are. So I don't think that we should try to compete with being a great religious institution. Um, when I say they don't need more religion, this means they don't need, in my opinion, more demands on their time, more demands on their lives, on their marriages, on their time with their children, uh, to, to, especially to build up the pastor's dreams of building a bigger church or something like that. Nor do they need to be told what God want, that God wants them to tithe or that God wants them to dress a certain way or to support this building fund, or to accept certain doctrines that they're not ready to accept. I mean, when Mormons come out, we can't expect them to automatically understand, obviously, many of the Christian doctrines that have been around a long time. I mean, look in my case. So in other words, exiting LDS need less of where they came from and more of him, just him, encouragement, in a walk with him, the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that pastors can feed them the word of God. Finally, the last thing exiting LDS folks need in their lives is religious indoctrination, and what I mean by that is being taught more traditions of men. And that's why we had that debacle over that word Trinity, um, because in the Mormon Christian debate, remember that's where I am talking from every time we do the show, from the Mormon Christian debate to include a man-made term, automatically we lose ground because we are accusing them of following man-made religion. And so we can't, we have to make sure that the path is clear. And so Mormons don't need, exiting Mormons don't need more traditions of men. They need what the Bible says, not what men say the Bible says. That includes from me, you know. It, they don't need Sean McCraney's opinions. They need what the Bible says. So listen, pastors and reverends and, and pastors out there like myself, those of you who are anxious to get a hold of people who are coming out of the Mormon faith, and maybe it's gonna be more and more from the way things seem to be uh, saying, it's not our job to try to impress them with how well we play church. Uh, we accomplish nothing by providing an XLDS with a new social life, in my opinion, except in the context of letting them get their stuff out. Uh, feed them the word, let them rest. They need rest. They need to be fed, just like sheep that have been lost in the wilderness. They need to be brought in the fold, uh, given water to drink. I've got a good friend, uh, RJR, he, he tends horses. He knows how to care for horses. You bring them in and you take care of them and you love them. That's what they need. And in my estimation, estimation everything else is a spiritual detriment, really. Think about that. Along these lines, when a person is a, uh, an active Latter-day Saint, there are two clouds that kind of hover over your head when you're an active member of the church. The first one, if they take their faith seriously, is the uncertain standing they always have before God. Are they worthy? Or am I doing enough? Much of that is alleviated when a person comes to a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That cloud goes away and they, when they begin to understand that Jesus is the worthy one and he did the worthy work 
And because of that, we look to him and we are freed from trying to establish our own righteousness, as Paul says. But the second cloud, especially if you are male, are the are you in harmony and in lockstep position with the brethren? That, that, that is a term that is passed around in Mormonism. The brethren say, what do the brethren think? It's just, oh, I hear it now, I just wanna die. And it means collectively anybody from a, mem- a male member of the church, but more importantly, the oldest quorum president, the bishop, the stake president, but truly it, when it's the brethren, they're talking about the hierarchy on North Temple, the apostles, the prophet, the, the 70, the quorums, that's the brethren as a whole. Uh, LDS apostle Boyd K. Packer uttered the infamous line, actually I think he was echoing uh, a line someone said before him, but nevertheless he's famous for it. He said, when the brethren speak, the thinking has been done. When the brethren speak, the thinking has been done. And this tells us how much sway that big, fat, slobbering monster called the brethren has over LDS people. Look to the brethren. Trust in the brethren. Follow the prophet. He knows the way, as they sing. So coming out of this, and not into another church or into another religion, but into a true relationship with Christ, it's such a liberating and enlightening experience because um, you're exiting Mormonism and you are free from the am I worthy cloud and you're free from what do the brethren think. You realize you don't care, you know? Unfortunately, being free is not always possible in the world of organized religion outside of Mormonism. I tell you, it's almost innate for human beings to want to appeal to authority that is in men. We want to quote what, what, what men are thinking and saying is right and we want to appeal to them because it removes us from the responsibility of following Christ directly ourselves. I had an interesting phone conversation with a man the other day who I know him really well. Uh, by the time it was done, I was feeling very sick. Uh, it was a brother in Christ who describes himself as a faithful Christian of over 40 years. And in our discussion, he mentioned that he recently visited, and he said it with this tone, Oxford, a place where he said, proudly stated, C.S. Lewis once discoursed. And with almost reverence in his voice, he said something like, the level, Sean, the level of Christian discourse at Oxford is just so advanced. You know, really? And I had to hold back an ugh when when I'm hearing this. When I hung up, I realized that what I was hearing was nothing more than the Christian version of praise to the man. It's really nothing more. But instead of calling these men the brethren, the Christians are more and more calling them the theologians. The theologians say, in fact, when a doctrinal position came up in our discussion over the phone, this guy said, oh, we just need to look to the theologians on matters like that. It was like a a reverberation from my Mormon years. We need to look to the brethren. We need to look to the theologians. Ugh! We got out of religion for that reason. I don't want to look to men. I mean, throughout the Bible, we are constantly warned by God, don't look to men. Look to me. He is constantly telling us about the failures of men. 
constantly warning about their ideas, how infallible our ideas are, and yet we constantly go back and think our theologians, our brethren, are going to have uh, an answer, you know? It's terrifying to hear from the mouth of a self-described mature Christian in Christ that Christianity is currently directed and decided upon by men and women with PhDs, men and women from academia. Is this what the faith is founded upon? Think about this. Look at Christianity today and who decides what is what, and then look at how Christianity started. Is Christianity standing on intellectual and academic ability and stance? In the end, how is a Christian appealing to a theologian on how to think and how to believe any different than a Latter-day Saint looking to the brethren? How? As if either group of those monkeys, you know, and I say that with all respect, have a corner on who God is and what he's not. I mean, my goodness, look at how we have allowed men to take hold of this beautiful faith that was started by a man born in a manger who picked 12 apostles who were laborers with their hands, no theologians, and there's plenty of them around. The brethren did not exist. The brethren were trying to kill him, actually. And a savior who had nothing that men would desire of him, according to Isaiah. He had no looks or anything that they would desire. The son of man had no place to rest his head. This is the savior, this is the leader of Christianity, his 12 apostles, and look what it's become today. <sighs> Governed by people who are supposedly strong, no, not only by academia, but by strong in money, and by the respected, by the accomplished society. Take a gander at the religious uniforms we've allowed in our midst and in the name of God, the collars, the robes, the suits. I mean, even the Tommy Bahama outfits, you know, for those respective leaders. Look around at, uh, uh, at everything around us. Look at the diplomas and the degrees. There are denominations where you have to have a PhD in order to be considered worthy to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about this, folks. Look around you. Is this the faith of the Bible? I mean, when we look at the actual literal descriptions of Christian faith housed in the heart of a believer, okay, which, is a, which of the following best represents the most qualified, according to the Bible, of a Christian leader teacher? Which? A materially poor, informally uneducated, formally uneducated, utterly humble woman of faith and love who knows her Bible. You have that picture. Or oh, a refined, well-appointed, highly educated adjunct professor, uh, professor in ancient languages. From what I read, how I read the Bible, that humble, poor woman who understands her Bible better is far more qualified in Christianity to be a leader and teacher than the other. I mean, that's just what the Bible says, but we've gone the other way. If you answered, well, the latter, Sean, we need to be able to do that. Which one of those two examples I just gave do you think Christ would call as his 13th apostle? 14th, I, I, I don't know, I think the humble, the one who just reads the Bible. I stand simultaneously terrified, disgusted by what believers in Christ today are, are, are accepting as of him. May God help, help us, you know. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, 
Help us to see the truth. In this place, Salt Lake City, Utah, in the state of Utah, in Idaho, California, Washington, Hawaii, these places where Mormonism truly proliferates, and then in other parts of the world, in the South America uh, nations, we pray that we will be able to help Latter-day Saints coming out, that they will see where to look and how to walk and where to go, so they don't become completely disillusioned and disaffected and completely lost in a quagmire of atheism or agnosticism because what they're seeing is just more man-made stuff. We pray that you will reveal yourself to the true uh, seekers, Lord. We pray for our volunteers, our staff, who give so much of their time and to make this program and uh, run. We pray for those who are seeking truth, our audience here, and wherever they may be, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get back to the whiteboard, another whiteboard discussion. We are gonna be doing these whiteboard talks uh, because every now and then people will say, how come you don't just talk about Mormonism anymore? And what they don't understand is we are talking about Mormonism. We are, but we're talking about it at a deeper level, a more meaningful level. We're talking about it in a way so people who are coming out now, you know, we've helped lead a whole bunch of people out. We're trying to help them see what to look for, where to, where to look at your faith, how to establish it as a better help, okay? So... To help jog your memory, let's go to the board and let's look at where we've been. Now, uh, am I going to? All right, Derek. So, we talked about trying to form, I'm sorry, I was instructed to move this. We talked about trying to form a marriage between Mormonism, represented by this female stick figure, and Christianity. It's not ecumenism. We're not trying to make them uh, uh, compromise in any way. We're just trying to take what is acceptable within the Bible from Mormonism, trashing the doctrines and teachings that are not, and then establishing common ground with what remains to help bridge the gap between these two. With Christianity, we want to trash the doctrines and traditions. And so far... Thank you, Wendy, for providing me with excellent pens. We have covered God or the Trinity. God talking about their view of Godhead, Trinity from this point. And we've had some frank discussion. We've had some ugly battles, quite frankly. In the end, how I would summarize it is God is in heaven. Jesus was God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit is God's spirit with us. It's all God, 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 God. That's how I see it now. And I think that's a common ground we can establish, removing names that are man-made. The second thing that we talked about is soteriology. Soteriology. And that is the way that each group believes men and women are saved, all right? And we talked about the LDS view, and last week we finished up talking about the, uh, the Christian views, okay? Get erasing. Hurry it up. <laughs> All right. So the question tonight now, and that we're gonna embark on possibly just tonight and maybe in the next two weeks, is for what purpose are we saved? What's the purpose? What are the Latter-day Saints? We've talked about how the Latter-day Saints say we are saved. In the, in the steps, 
But what is the whole purpose and point behind being saved as a Latter-day Saint? What's the whole purpose and point between being saved in Christianity? And is there a definitive common ground view or that we can get rid of the trash on either side and come to a unique understanding? So, thank you, Wendy. Let's talk about it. First, let's just put Mormonism. And then we will put uh, traditional Christianity. And then we'll put X. And we'll cover these three tonight. And it's going to be pretty easy. I think we, we understand, okay? Mormonism. Why does God save us? The green light's on that one. There we go. All right. God saves people, according to Mormonism, quote, to bring about the immortality and eternal life of man. This is how they would capture it. That's the quote. That is what Mormonism say, the reason Jesus came, really to bring about the immortality and eternal life of man. Now, that's really truly, when the rubber meets the road, code for becoming gods. That's it. Jesus came, we talked about this when we talked about their soteriology. He suffered for the sins of the world. Believers go through, they accept Jesus. That's the first thing they get baptized as eight-year-olds. They go and they go through all the process which we've talked about. But in the end, the whole purpose and point, God did not have all this get established in the Mormon view in order for people to not become gods. His whole point was for people to become gods. And then when they become gods, they go out and they establish their own universes and their own planets, and they populate them with their own wives. And, and you know, they might, re, they might say that's not true. It's absolutely true. These are all eternal principles. Man's a little bit bigger here. And uh, that's the whole thing, become gods, the reason, all right? So, we have two kind of, well, there's really two or three. We'll go with two views from traditional Christianity, all right? And I'm, I am doing traditional Christianity an injustice here because I'm not going to articulate all the nuanced uh, positions that exist between the two major ones, and there's, there's a number of them. But bottom line, let me go with the first one. The first one is salvation for salvation's sake. And what that means is the, the Christian who kind of adheres to this is of the mindset that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoso would believe on him should have everlasting life and not perish. And so that, that Christian will constantly focus on, I've been saved, my relationship with Jesus, I have been redeemed, I'm going to heaven, I'm not going to hell. All of those things, and it's just about salvation for salvation's sake. 
Do they have any biblical concept of what happens thereafter? Not really, it's I've been saved. I, and they'll say blanket statements like, I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. And, and it's, it's very encapsulated and it's, it's true. It's, it's a true premise. Is it the full biblical premise? I'm not sure. So the first kind of perspective is salvation for salvation's sake. And we, in that we find kind of the, um, kind of the Calvary Chapel, I hate to, you know, because that's where I came from in my training, kind of the Jesus, oh, and you get there on Sunday and you just worship Jesus and Jesus is your Lord and your God and you focus on Jesus and you're grateful that he saved you and that's the extent of it. And you're really big on, I have been saved by grace. And they don't, I mean, if that's really the, uh, the operative phrase, I have been saved by God's grace, okay? The second view is all about sanctification. And this comes usually more through the, de uh, the denominations. And the quote for them is, I have been saved by grace through faith. It's not that this group doesn't believe that they've been saved by uh, grace through faith, but they're just so grateful for the grace that God has shown them in finding them and reaching them and Jesus gave his life, that this really is the focus of that believer. The sanctification, I have been saved by grace through faith, adds in this idea that now I need to be moved toward holiness. And so what you find is the focus is not necessarily on have you been saved. They do teach that. They do talk about that. But it's now where are you going with your faith? Are you living a chaste life? Are you avoiding alcohol and drunkenness? Are you looking the part? And so we have, there's a, there's a fine line between holiness movements and legalism. And the reason is, is because often people who are, are, are kind of part of this part of why God saved us believe that now to show that they believe they have been saved by uh, grace through faith, they prove it by their flesh, so to speak. They prove it by how often they attend church, how they watch their language. And it's not, remember, I am not saying that they're watching their language to earn their, or keep their salvation, but they do believe holiness is required. My, my youngest daughter goes to a holiness school. It's a Nazarene school, and they believe in holiness. They believe in personal sanctification to the point where the students should be walking holy lives, and there's a big emphasis on legalism there. And so that's what it kind of translates to. And traditional biblical Christianity, we can break it down into those two areas. Now, real good ones, and this is the third part, which I'm doing traditional Christianity in injustice, really is what X is, and I'm gonna talk about here, okay? So I'm not gonna put it here, but it really does fit under it, and, and let's talk about that. I would suggest that this is the biblical model, and what's interesting about it is in the marriage between the Mormon and Christian, we have some assimilation between the two ideas, folks. It's almost entirely missed 
by this group. You do not hear this amalgamation of the two thoughts coming in between the Mormon thought and the, and the traditional Christian thought in, the, in their marriage. And so let me explain what it is. This group, and this I believe is the biblical model, is we are saved by grace, and you can put God here, God's grace, through our faith to love. And, and that is probably, in my opinion, the best definition of what ought to respond, what, ought, what to occur, and the reason Christ came is because God so loved the world, he saved us, we believe upon him, and that doesn't stop there. We get sanctification in our lives by the love. These are the fruits of the Christian walk. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about this. Uh, the whole purpose and point of salvation under X is for God to make people sons and daughters. Okay? When we are just, when we are saved here at this point, we lose idea sometimes in churches that that's the end all. This is what God's reason was for saving us. You know another way it puts it? For us to become, listen to this, joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs. That's co-sharers in all that the Father has. We don't ever talk about that much, not, especially not here. Here it's just Jesus, 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 you know, and yeah, I'm a sinner saved by grace, you know, give me the joint, oh, Jesus, Jesus. I mean, it really is, but this is the point here. This is the biblical point. It's not easy stuff. It's troubling. And so, Wendy, get your job. There are three heuristics that I'm gonna use to illustrate how this is so. And I want you to use these as tools to help understand because truly to be a joint heir with Christ, to be a son and daughter of God is not far from the LDS idea of becoming gods. Now, don't take me wrong. Theirs is completely blasphemous. It is becoming God Almighty. It's becoming your own. It's what Satan had in his heart. Utterly disagree with that. But there is something to the LDS idea of Christ coming and saving us, not just for the merits of being saved, but because God is looking to bring us to the position of being sons and daughters, joint heirs with Christ. And scripture says we are joint heirs with him if we suffer with him. That's what it says, okay? So let's use the first heuristic. I, I taught it last week, but I just wanna go back to it. You ready? And I'll just explain it really quickly. And, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's illustrated by this. We have a man. He is only this tall. He's not going to get any taller. And so we have the height of that man here and his foot level there, okay? And this is his life. 
this span that's going out like that, his earthly life. And so what we have is this man at this point is born again. He comes to know who Jesus Christ is. And the man enters into a walk in this direction with Christ in his life, okay? Now, that man is going to, because he's still alive, he is going to walk in flesh. And he's also now, because he's been born again, gonna walk in spirit. As this man sojourns toward becoming a son of God, a joint heir with Christ, you're going to see something happen. And that is, in his flesh, he is gonna get smaller and smaller. He is going to shrink in the former man that he was going this way with all the sin of the flesh in his life, and he's gonna progress by dying to himself to where it's just a little tiny person, still alive in the flesh. Here has it, this is death here. So he hasn't reached it yet. So there's still a little flesh there, we can't overcome it, you'll never kill it. Once you do, you're dead, okay? <clears throat> but you can see that as this man progresses on this, the spirit, this is a little baby infant zygote, embryotic, born again here at this point. Babes in Christ, babes, very little in spirit. And as he grows and the flesh shrinks, the spirit gets stronger. And the spirit man then begins to reign and rule over the little tiny itty bitty flesh man that exists. Okay, this is a heuristic to show exactly what scripture teaches. If you go to a church or, or you're a Mormon and you think it's just all about going and doing your temple ordinances, you're a fool. If you think you can be a Christian and say, Jesus, I love you, and then you stay at this point in your flesh and this guy stays this big, you're a fool. That's not what the Bible teaches. It never has. Jesus never has. I am all for this experience. This is what we have focused on. This is rebirth. And it gets us on this path of life in the spirit. But the direct correlation is the flesh has to die it's smaller in order for the spirit to grow because there's only so much room for the individual. And either the spirit's gonna be bigger or the flesh. Okay, Wendy, attack that. That's the first heuristic, okay? I'm gonna give you another one. You've seen it before. And, uh, and then I'm gonna end with that one. And next week, I'll give you the final one, which I think is the best one. And I'm not sure we've shown it on the show before. This one uh, we showed last week, and I'll be quick, and then we're gonna go to Chris in Houston, Texas, okay? Here's the other heuristic that will help you understand what God wants from us using illustrations on the board. And as I said before, it all begins with X. And this is how we described it, right? God, here's the universe. He is looking down and he decides to create man in his own image and here's the world and man has dominion over the earth, okay? And here's the universe, God, the same shape as man but reversed. Adam comes in and he sins and there's a disconnect between 
There's a break between man, God, who is pointing down, and man. And this was spiritual death. You with me so far? And at that point, what happened, the reason there was spiritual death is because man decided that he could become God. And so man faced the same way God was facing. He said, I'm not just a mirror image of God here, having dominion over the earth. I'm going to be exactly like God. Okay, and I'm going to rule over my own world, and that's called spiritual death. At that point, man, I would suggest we can just bifurcate him into three parts. Body, soul, spirit. And so at the meridian of time, Christ, God so loved the world, we became a father, son, Holy Spirit. And, 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 and he's trying to reach man who has fallen and thinks he's God, who's in body, soul, and spirit. You're with me, it's, it's quick. Well, at rebirth, man says, you know what? I've really messed up with my life. This is the direction I wanna be with everything looking to God, not everything looking down to my power in this form. And so man flips. And so what we have here is man goes like this, and we have body, soul, and spirit, and that's rebirth. And then we have God who's always facing the same way, looking like this, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And at that point, we have what we call integration. We have man and God integrating into one, one, one unit. We have Father, uh, Son, Holy Spirit still pointing in the same direction. We have uh, body, soul, and spirit of man, and it's all pointing to the center point here. This is, this is when everybody is a babe in Christ. God and Jesus and Holy Spirit, bodies are all pointing and we're reborn. But does it end here? No, it doesn't. We go to the next point. What we do is we start to grow. And so we start to produce little buds and we start to point outward. Now we've been focused inward here because Jesus loves us, he saved us, but then we start to look at the world around us and we start to grow. So we go from being a babe in Christ to being a child of God to being a, uh, to being a young man, young woman. And then finally, you take these same figures, God, man, and you take them and you overlap them. God, man, and what you have here is the integration with full capacity of sanctification. This is the goal. This is the joint heir with Christ. This is exactly what it's all about. This is when you become a son and daughter or daughter of Christ. And you'll notice something that inside of this, we have this very figure that you started off with as a babe in Christ, except you fully matured pointing out to others, pointing up to God, doing all you can for the lives of others now. That's the heuristic that we have to understand. So, the Mormon debate and their, and their criticism of Christians is, oh, so you just come to know Jesus, you roll over, you do what you want, which we know isn't true, but they, they capture it that way, and then you go on and you just live on a cloud afterward. We know that their idea of, hey, you need to progress in your faith, we know that's true from the Bible. Joseph Smith was not dumb. 
He, did, he was raised in Christianity. He knew the Bible. He told his mom, Mom, I don't need to go to church. I can go out in the woods and read my own Bible and come up with what it's saying better than most of those pastors I'm listening to. Arrogant, yes. Did he go off the deep end? Absolutely. Do they preach a false gospel? Certainly. Mormon temples and all that garbage? Junk. But we don't get our sanctification and growth by our flesh. That's the other part where we lose it in Christianity. We do it by the Spirit. And we're gonna talk about that next week when we come back here on Heart of the Matter. In the meantime, let's go to Chris in Houston, Texas. See what, Chris, you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call, Sean. Uh, had a good show tonight. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I've got two questions for you. Yes. Um, <clears throat> the first question for you uh, is concerning the... Uh, Book of Abraham. Okay. Uh, that that the Mormons consider scripture. I, you know, my time in the church, I could never get a straight answer about how seriously the other congregants or the church took this particular so-called book. Um, from your experience, how seriously did the people in your wards or stake or whatever? How seriously did they take that book? It, it related directly to their stage in their Mormon life. If they, were, uh, if they were kind of on the fringe of Mormonism, they went to basketball games and ward uh, stuff, none. If they were elders quorum leaders and stuff, a little bit more. If they were the high priest group leader, have been in Mormonism a long time, they love that book. And they turn to it far more than they ever turn to the Bible. Okay, uh, that's the... Kind of the feeling I got when I was there, I, I kept bringing up to these people that there really isn't any evidence to corroborate that. And all I got was, well, I got to have faith and Joseph Smith the prophet and blah, blah, blah. Kind of sounded like a broken record after a while. And uh, this brings me to my second question, which is when I, when I was active in the church, the term apostasy was really used a lot for um, just as a catch-all for people who really didn't toe the line. Um, at all. And I never really got a clear definition for what apostasy was while I was in the church. Um, from your experience, what exactly was apostasy in the Mormon church? Well, I think my experience, Chris, is a little uh, jaded or it's a little um, uh, subjective because I am a true apostate. And so I have come to understand what the true Latter-day Saints believe apostasy is, and that is turning from the tenets of the faith taught by Joseph Smith and fighting against the church. That's probably the best definition of apostasy. Now, they will use the term apostate. It was kind of a, a fun term that they would use with each other. Oh, you apostate, come to church more and stuff like that. But the true definition is those people who turn from Joseph's teachings and the church and fight against it. Okay, that explains uh, kind of what I, uh, what I experienced. Now, I don't publicly fight against the tenets of the church, but um, this has died down to a degree. Uh, they used to send the missionaries over all the time to help me save myself, so to speak, and I, I told them finally, look, I, I have, I'm done with y'all. I need to uh, tell you that. And I told them I joined the uh, big Protestant church down the street. They said, oh, man, oh, man, that's apostate. That's, you know, that's... <laughs> They didn't say it like I just did, but they were, you know. <laughs> I told them, 
I told him, I said, well, I'll buy you a cup of coffee next time you come over. And they didn't like yeah. it too much. <laughs> hey, but, Chris, uh, you know what's interesting yeah. about that? Is like when I when I'm on a plane, usually it's on the plane because it go from Utah to somewhere, and there's lots of Mormons there, and you have the conversation, and it's unbelievable how when you start to talk and they say, "What do you do?" and you say, "I'm a pastor," and they say, "Great," and and yet to like you, the missionary said they're apostates. Yeah, and. The, the missionaries that came over, uh, they're from everywhere else other than Texas. And I told them, I said, look, I live in Texas. I've been here most of my life. I'm going to drink iced tea. You don't like it? I'm not coming back to your church. Well, they looked at me like, oh, my gosh, this guy's a wax job. And I told them, hey, I'm supposed to wear funny underwear when I come to your church. Don't tell me that's not crazy. <laughs> Well, anyway. Yeah, it's true. It's a crazy deal. So you were LDS, not anymore. You've going, you're going to a apostate Protestant church. How are you liking it? I love it. In fact, I just started driving the golf carts at the evening service to cart people back and forth, <laughs> and I love it. It's amazing. Hey, that um, would be fun. That would be fun. Not only is it, well, you're right, and not only is it fun, I can, I can tell you this um, in all honesty, 100% of the people at that church wouldn't be anywhere uh, good enough to go to the temple, but they're good enough for Jesus. Praise God. That's the message. They wouldn't wouldn't last six months in a church. They're like like me. They like to do human stuff, the air, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Praise God. Great call, Chris. Thanks so much. All right. Have a good night. All right. See you later. That's Chris from Houston, Texas. 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. The phones are uh, open. It looks like one call. Let me grab my notes. Getting better and better at this as I age. <laughs> All right. Couple things here. Uh, I guess, well, not I guess, I know. The LDS Church is um, coming out with um, revisionist history. And they're very good at that. They are really strongly coming out with revisionist history now. And so what they're doing is they're providing articles to their own website to address the real sticky issues that have long plagued the church. Now, uh, recently in the Deseret News, there is an article here, and it's, it's interesting. It's the Deseret News, and on the cover of it, they have two black people uh, on the Deseret News, and then, uh, sorry, Derek, and then the, the article on the front says, LDS Blacks scholars cheer church's essay on priesthood. And so what the church has done is they have rewritten uh, and they, they have an article where they have come out and they have made a declarative stance on the priesthood ban and the priesthood being given to black people in 1978. And we read today, the essay says, that the church has on their site, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse or that it reflects actions in a pre-mortal life that mixed race marriages are a sin or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn 
all racism, past, present, and in any form, okay? And then they give a quote from a guy who is the uh, leader of the LDS Church Genesis Group for Black Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake City, and he says, how else could you feel but great? Okay, he says, they've renounced the silliness that blacks were fence-sitters and less valued in the pre-mortal existence, all the things some members had used to justify racism, okay? All you gotta do is read that and realize there is a whitewashed job beyond compare going on right here. First of all, it was the LDS leaders in the 1950s and 60s and even early 70s who were the ones who were spouting the rhetoric that black people were inferior in the pre-mortal existence and were sitting on the fence and therefore got their black skin. It was Marky Peterson. It was Spencer W. Well, it might not have been Spencer W. Kimball. I can't remember. I thought I had a quote from him. It was Joseph Fielding Smith. It was McConkie. And these were the leaders. So this guy who is representing blacks who are now LDS is hailing this clarification and he's saying it's so great that they've cleared this up and these silly things that some members used to use, the church used it. There's a book called Mormon and the Negro. I have a copy, friends have copies, and all you gotta do is read it. All you gotta do is read their stuff and you know it came from the top down. And so what the, what the thing does not do is it doesn't say we're sorry that our leaders, our prophet and apostles had these racist positions. We don't, that doesn't say that. It says all of that stuff was myth and folklore and was not really part of the church. And this is how they survive. It's by constantly revising, denying, and they know because they're a publicity machine, the more they get out there on Disgrace Book and everywhere else, the more people are just gonna roll over and say, oh, they don't believe that stuff. And it was all part, and you just say something enough, people believe it, and that's what's happening in this case. I wanna know one thing about the Book of Mormon. How come the Book of Mormon still teaches, continues to teach, that skin color is a representative of the worthiness or the righteousness of a people. The Book of Mormon still teaches that. So if this is true about blacks in the priesthood, what about the Indians? What about the, the dark skin that it talks about in the Book of Mormon? I also wanna know how Latter-day Saints today could trust anything their leaders say, knowing that in 40 years, you're gonna see articles in the Deseret News that say the leaders never step against homosexuals. We love the homosexuals, we embrace the homosexuals, we believe their marriage is just as, as valid as any other marriage, and that's folklore that we ever stood against homosexuals. I'm not saying homosexuality and homosexual marriage is uh, right or biblical and not a sin, I'm just saying this is what they do. How do you know when you listen to them that you can trust what they're saying when all they do is step back and renounce it later? It's unbelievable. You know, and that being said, I want you to know, um, I know we talk a lot about issues that need to be corrected in Christianity. And I know we've been doing that a while, and I sincerely believe that's part of the Mormon Christian debate. Christians gotta get their own house in order. But do not mistake uh, my uh, absolute abhorrence for the Mormon church, for Mormonism. It is a diabolical cult. It was founded on diabolical roots because some truth exists in it and we're trying to come up with even ground to work for. Do not think I'm a syncretist and trying to bring all things together. Not at all. 
Mormonism has nothing but bondage for its members. It is based on fame, it is based on wealth, it is based on power, and it is based on sex. And all of those things are what motivate the people who are in it at the top. So don't think I've gotten soft on Mormonism, not at all. Uh, and in fact, it breaks my heart. I, our, we have a realtor who's a good friend of mine. He came out of the Kingston family, okay? This guy tells me that when his family was in the Kingston group, the head of the Kingston group, who runs a restaurant supply company here, he's related to this guy, that guy who owns that restaurant supply company has uh, 27 wives and almost 300 children. He says they are in bondage to that man. Everything is about money. Everything is about sex. Everything is about power. That is the seed from which Mormonism came. And that's why when you go up to North Temple, you see monolithic conference centers and billion dollar shopping malls. That is, those are the things of this world. It is satanic. So don't think wrongly that I'm backing off on it. We just have to be fair. And if we want, we care about the people, the Mormon people I love, and I don't have the same passion against them at all. I care about them and I see them in that religion. I see these dead mothers and fathers wandering around, coming into Carl's Jr., stammering up there in their white shirts and can we order 50 Happy Meals? And they're just dying from their religious uh, obligations. I just wanna make sure when we bring these good people out who want to serve God, that they don't go into another cult-like religion and that's why we're doing it. But don't get me wrong. In line with that, let me read a quick uh, email. This, it's not a quick one, actually. It's about, uh, it's from a guy whose name is Bill. And this is what he says. I'd sent an email to you some months ago about my wife divorcing me and going back to the LDS church. Uh, you gave me your phone number and we were going to chat, but I never called. And he wants to tell me about his experience. And I got to summarize it because it's two pages long. But what he says is, my wife and I were committing adultery and uh, she felt guilty about that being LDS. And so... Uh, we came out, we got married, we had four children together, we had a life, we were repenting, we were going to a Christian church, she was baptized, she received the Lord. And while I was going to work, every day her father was calling her, come back to the church, come back to the church, dripping on her, come back to the church. Well, long story short, that's exactly what she did. She said, I'm going, I gotta go back to the church. Finally, the calling of the parent, you see, the family calling, dripping on these poor people who are trying to walk in faith. And the family is calling to them and weighing on them to come back. And so she finally did. And he said, I don't want you to do that. And it ended their marriage. And so what happens is the church then hooks her up. She, the, the bishop allows her to hook up with another guy who's LDS and has been through a divorce. Now they have a fat, dumb, happy Mormon couple and the kids are divided and they're split up. They're now in their early teens, split up between religion, upset over what mom has done, not knowing if they should be Christian or Mormon. This is what the Mormon church is about. You choose it over all things, all things. And if it's a husband who's become a Christian, you get rid of him. And my wife has experienced that. When I became a Christian, the stake president and bishop said, leave that guy, leave him and get somebody else who's in the church. It's all about the power, it's about the control, it's about the money, and it's about the sex. Uh, why do you view everything so adversarially? A question is, 
Uh, I'm a natural questioner. Uh, I'm a natural deviant. Uh, 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 mean, I deviate. Not I'm a like a sexual deviant. You pervert. I'm uh, although I probably am that too. Uh, no, but I am a deviant from the course that's normally laid out. I always have been. I just can't stand to walk the regular course. I don't do it on purpose. The other thing is I wasn't raised Christian. You see, and so I wasn't inculcated with all the stuff Christians have. I was just brought up a Mormon. I saw what it was. I came out. Yeah, I went to Calvary Chapel for two years, but did very, so I wasn't raised Christian, so I don't have all these blinders on. And so when I see something that's religious BS, I question it. That's the position I've been put in by God, I believe. And so instead of being raised in the Mormon church and then, and then years and years and years in the Christian church, and Christians hold this against me, well, he really doesn't understand our doctrine. Unfortunately, I think I do. You know, and I read the Bible. And because I haven't been, you know, brainwashed by some pastor's opinions, I see it for what it says. So you might view it as adversari adversarial, but I don't think it is. I ran into a friendly guy. Uh, another thing, just quickly, because we get these questions, I get them. Uh, he's an agnostic. He used to watch the show in a place the other day. And during small talk, he said, you know, <laughs> Sean, just want to ask one question, you know, what's with all the changes to your personal appearance? You know, the hair, the, the weight, the facial stuff. I mean, what's going on with you? What? How come that's... A... So uh, there's several uh, contributors to this. Uh, first is insanity. And, uh, uh, but really, I get bored very, very easily. Uh, and uh, I come from the LA Orange County punk scene and uh, style has always been alternative in my life. It's never been the mainstream. And genetically, weight is a major battle in our family. So I battle that and that's why I go up and down. I don't have the genes and I, and I don't have the eating habits either. I eat when I'm frustrated. And so when you see the weight go up, it's because I'm frustrated and because uh, the genes uh, are winning at that point. I go down when I'm able to control it. My dad is 86 years old and he's 360 pounds. 86 at 360, my brother died at 360. I had an aunt who was 600 pounds. You know, so the weight fluctuation, so I'm in TV, you see it up ebb and flow, too bad. Bite the wall if you don't like it, you know? Uh, and then I view normalcy as, uh, as aberrant in some ways. I'm passionate. I live passionately. It's expressed in my appearance and uh, without trying. In the end, I have a question. Final, we'll wrap the show up with this. Oh my goodness, we have Mike in another place. I'm gonna come back to the wrap-up question, but let's take Mike. He's calling from England. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, yes. Um, I'll keep it short. It's uh, the International Darling Code. Took a while. Um, I, I recently, recently left the LDS Church, um, thanks to yourself. It was uh, initially over Blacks of the Priesthood, funny enough, uh, talking to a fellow colleague. So after 46 years, I've left. As a babe in Christ, it's recently just coming out a few months ago. I'm having a few problems trying to work out the spiritual side of the sacrament. Sacrament's very important to us as LDS members, taking the sacrament each Sunday. Um, and I'm having trouble trying to understand how that relates to himself and my wife as we come out now. That's a great... Because obviously the Jews do a Saturday, the church is a Sunday. But what is the sacrament? Is it bread and water or is it a meal like it used to be in traditional biblical times? Or how do we get back to having that spiritual rebirth of the sacrament in our lives? Mike, uh... My answer is going to be argued by, depending on the de denomination, okay? My answer is this. Uh, Jesus established the bread and wine after a meal with his 12. He said, right. whenever you gather, 
do this in remembrance of me. And so when we take the sacrament, communion, we are remembering through eating of the, the, uh, drinking of the wine and eating of the unleavened bread, his sacrifice and coming, taking on flesh, dying for us, resurrecting. That it's a memorial service. It is not, doesn't have anything to do with renewing covenants for spiritual rebirth or sanctification like it had in the Mormon or Catholic church. Right, okay. Okay. One um, other thing. What, what? Would I have a problem just doing that at home? Because I've got to be honest, after leaving the LDS church for myself, my wife and some of my family, at the moment aren't ready to go back to another church before in that category of strange. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> you know what, Mike, I would suggest is if and when the spirit leads and if you're willing, you know, you might just gather your family around and, and, and if you want to do a communion service with each other, do it. And just, right. there's no set prayer. There's no set setting. There's no frequency that's required. Uh, and I'll, I could explain that more. But you might just do start that way and just keep reading your Bible together and praying. The Holy Spirit will guide you, my brother. Right, that's great. We, we enjoy your show. We keep trying to get, learn from you watching your videos. So thank you very much. And we'll take that on board and we'll bring that into our lives as a family. God bless okay. you, Mike. Okay, right, God bless you. Thank, thank you, you. bye-bye. I love that accent. We'll take this on board. I love, I could, wish I could talk like that. Okay, uh, we are out of time. Mike, Godspeed. And to the rest of you who may be watching, streaming, or in the archives, pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one question in the end. What sums it all up, Sean? What sums it all up is very simple. Jesus, believe him, follow him. Believe him, follow him. How do you follow him? In love. For God and for neighbor. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know, and I can feel